Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. Our scene is this. Paul is in Caesarea, having been bound over to Caesarea by the Roman commander from Jerusalem after Paul started a couple riots. Not his fault. In Jerusalem, before in the temple complex and before the Sanhedrin, he goes to Caesarea, the first procurator there two years earlier, named Felix, tries him, doesn't find anything wrong with what Paul is doing, but on the other hand, he doesn't set him free as in strict justice he should have done, and he was looking for a bribe. He was an unjust man. He was deported, uh, not deported, he was deprived of his tenure as procurator in Caesarea in over Judea because of opposition from the Jews because of corruption, basically. And so they, the Romans put a new procurator in there, Portius Festus. And Portius Festus, Paul was trying again to curry favor with the Jews, but he knew Paul wasn't guilty. And so he said, well, Paul, why don't you go back down to Jerusalem and get tried? And Paul says, uh-uh, ain't going down there, because they would have killed him, of course. He says, I want to go to Rome. And now that was a smart decision Paul made, in my opinion. And so Festus said, okay, I'm going to send you to Rome. But now Festus had to write a letter with his prisoner to bind him over, to charge, give him an indictment, if you will, when he goes to the judicial authorities in Rome. And he doesn't know what to say because he doesn't know what the big deal was. He can't figure out what Paul did that was so wrong. He obviously wasn't trying to start riots. So he, so Portius Festus, the Roman guy, decides to let Paul have a hearing before Herod Agrippa II, who had been ruling at least for six years in, in uh, Judea and who would know more, as we'll see later. He knew more about the Jewish religion than uh, uh, Festus did. And so Festus thought, well, maybe I can learn something. Uh, He'll sit and listen. And so they got this big meeting. Festus got this big meeting together in an auditorium in Caesarea, and all the the Roman commanders were there. There were five of them. There were a bunch of big shots from the city of Caesarea. There was Festus himself. And then King Herod Agrippa II and his sister lover, or I shouldn't repeat rumors, his sister Bernice, who was accused by many people of living in incestuous sin with Agrippa. But at any rate, Bernice and Agrippa come in there, and Festus turns the hearing over to Agrippa, and this is where we start here in Acts 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, It is permitted for you to speak for yourself. In other words, go ahead, Paul, and speak, because Festus has turned the meeting over to Agrippa now, so Agrippa said, Okay, it's your turn. Speak. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. He stretched out his hand. This is what you do when you ask for silence from the meeting. He said, it's time to get started. I'm getting ready to speak. He wasn't trying to be rhetorical, to to give a rhetorical flourish or anything. He's just trying to get people quiet. Now, he stretched out his hand for quiet, even though he was chained to a soldier. Because we read in Acts 26, 29, at this same hearing, this is what Paul says. I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only with you but all who listen to me today, might become as I am, except for these chains. So he refers to the chains by which he's bound. So he's given his defense, but he's not exactly afforded the greatest dignity. He's in chains as he defends himself. Now his defense that he's going to give is essentially the same as his defense on the fortress Antonia's stairs a couple of years earlier in Jerusalem when the riot was started and he was rescued by Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander. Remember, Paul asked Lysias if he could please address the crowd, and he addressed the crowd, and everything was fine. They listened to him, and he was speaking in Aramaic. Whoa, let's listen to this guy. And then he mentioned, and God sent me to the Gentiles. He got to the word Gentiles, and all Hades breaks loose. They start rioting. But, that, but basically, on the fortress stairs, 
Paul was defending himself against charges that he was against Israel, against the law, against the temple. But now here before Agrippa, his defense is going to be more focused on his commission to the Gentiles that God had given him a little bit different. So we go to verses, I don't know why it was any different, but it just, it just is. He, as we'll see as we go through Acts 26, he emphasizes his commission to the Gentiles a lot. We go to Acts 26, verses 2 through 3. Paul continues, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I am going to make a defense before you about everything I am accused of by the Jews, especially since you are an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Well, there you have it. Agrippa is an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies, and that's why Festus wanted to have this hearing so he could figure out what the heck is going on here. How did Festus become an? How did Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, become an expert? Well, he. This is NIV's study Bible's points. One, Herod Agrippa II controlled the temple treasury. He controlled the investiture of the high priest. My notes say the investments of the high priest. I think that's wrong. I don't think the high priest was investing in any capital stock anywhere. It's the investiture of the high priest that was controlled by Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa II had the right to appoint the high priest as well as to invest him in his office. When the Romans wanted to know something about Jewish religious matters, which of course that happened a lot, who did they consult? They went to Herod Agrippa II. So, Paul says he considers himself fortunate to be before him. Why was that? Because before Lysias and before Felix and before Festus, Paul had not been able to get his freedom. And so he says, well, hot dog, I've got another chance here before Herod Agrippa II, and you know something about the Jews Unlike Lysias, Felix, and Festus, maybe I can get out of here. Previous judicial officers had not understood Judaism, nor had they understood the issues in controversy. Now, King Agrippa II, I've mentioned this in previous audios, I'll mention it again. King Agrippa was the Jewish king, I say king, that's, that's kind of a loose term. He was, a, he was the guy in charge, let's put it this way. The Romans had all these titles, procurators, governors, kings, and I can't keep them straight. But he was appointed by Rome, and he was in charge of the area east of the Sea of Galilee and just south of Damascus. If you look at the map, you'll see the Roman subdivisions there, Trachonitis, Galanus, Galanitis, Batania. And then if you go north of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see Aturia, these places. That's kind of where he was. most of his power was. Now, I've got a little note here. Something caught my eye. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa. Have you noticed how Christians today will not use that word lucky? Because lucky sounds like we're all the pawns of an impersonal fate and we're not, our lives are not controlled by the providential care of God. And that really does make sense. And so I've got no problem with that. However, I do know that the term lucky is just such a part of the language. It doesn't really, when people use it, they don't really mean that we're controlled by an impersonal fate that is, at bottom, nothing but chance. I don't think people mean it that way, so it doesn't bother me that much. It bothers a lot of Christians. And I noticed here that Paul used that term, I consider myself fortunate, lucky. However, I looked the Greek up. The Greek is makarios, and it means blessed as well as lucky, so it goes either way. So you see the words, the concepts are close. So we just need to be careful about getting people upset about things we don't need to get them upset about. If they want to use lucky, let them use lucky. If you don't want to use lucky, well, then don't use it. We go to verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 26. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my, 
among my own nation and in Jerusalem. Paul's own nation was Cilicia, the capital of which was Tarsus, which is right there on the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, right as you go up to the corner of the sea and take a left to go west. They, the Jews, had previously known me, known Paul for quite some time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now, the Jews were probably not willing to testify that because that would be embarrassing to them that their great Pharisaical leader has turned tail and has turned coat and is now standing up for the people that he used to persecute. And that is an apologetic point right there. If Paul is guilty of something, why in the world? Or if he is guilty of supporting a false religion, why in the world would he turn tail from a secure place amongst the Pharisees and go identify himself with this despised sect, this despised bunch of rabble-rousers who are upsetting things and turning the world upside down. Why would he do that? So that it's, and in law, that's an admission against interest. You know, if you admit that something that makes you look bad, Paul said, hey, I'm admitting something. I look, I look bad when I was young. But when you do that, it makes people tend to believe you more. So Paul is trying to say, look, my testimony is credible because I used to be just like these Pharisees. I used to persecute the same way people, Christians, the same way these Pharisees persecuted me. But something changed me. And he's going to tell about his heavenly vision in our next audio. At the end of Acts 26, he's going to talk about that vision he had of Jesus. And he's saying for somebody to change his mindset so radically to go from a persecutor of the church to a defender of the church, that means something must have happened. And that something must be true. So this is what Paul is getting at. And not only was he a Jew, raised in Jerusalem since he was a kid, but he was of the strictest party of the Jews, a Pharisee. Now, there were three parties back then, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. The Essenes were kind of ascetic out in the, out in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. The Sadducees were rationalist political types, a lot of them. They had the majority of the Sanhedrin. They tended to favor the Romans, keep things quiet. Don't cause them any problems. The Pharisees were very religious, very theological. The Pharisees believed the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. The Sadducees were kind of rationalist type of people. And they were the Sadducees weren't so strict as far as the law was concerned, but the Pharisees were. So Paul was the Pharisee. He says in Galatians 1.14, Paul says this, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Extremely zealous Paul was. Now when Paul says that his youth was spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, that means he lived part of his youth in Jerusalem. Part of his youth was where he was born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, which is, a, is a, on the northwest, is the, on the southern Anatolian coast there on the northwest corner of the sea, northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when he got that sometime in his youth, he came to Jerusalem. He was educated under Gamaliel. Acts 22.3 says this. He, Paul, continued, I am a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. And so Paul makes it very clear to Agrippa that he was a Pharisee and he really loved the Jewish traditions and laws. And again, he's trying to make a contrast. How could somebody that was so strict, so strictly a Pharisee, all of a sudden become a follower of Christ, preaching freedom from that law? 
Acts 26, verse 6, and Paul continues before Herod Agrippa II, and now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, what hope is Paul referring to? Here's three options. The hope for God's kingdom to be established, option one. Option two, the hope that the Messiah will come. And option three, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Well, the hope of God's kingdom, here's some scriptures quoted by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown trying to include that. The NIV Study Bible says it uh, suggests that as an option here. Acts 13.32, this is Paul speaking to the Jews at Pisidian Antioch on the first missionary journey. Paul says this, And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. And that, of course, is referred to the famous Abrahamic promise of land, of offspring, of blessings in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and repeated many, many times in the Old Testament through, uh, to Abraham and Isaac, and mentioned all the time, the famous Old Testament promise, the promise of the fathers. And so this is probably is, is one option as to what Paul is talking about here. I'm on trial for the promise made by God to our fathers, the hope that that promise will be will be eventuated. Acts 28.20, Paul says this, For this reason I've asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. For the hope of Israel, the hope that Israel will be be established, land, seed, blessings, that Israel will be established as according to the Abrahamic promise. Now, favoring this interpretation that this is the hope that Paul's talking about, if we look in verse 7, I'll read that in advance here. Paul says, the promise our 12 tribes hope to attain is they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Again, the hope is not spelled out, but he mentions the 12 tribes are hoping to attain it. That sounds like they're trying to attain to the kingdom of God. I think that's probably the answer. However, there's some other options. It could be the hope of the Messiah. But Adam Clark says, no, it's not the Messiah. Even though the NIV studied Bible, John Gill and uh, say that's a good option, and Jameson Foster Brown says, in fact, that's the option. He believes that this is the hope that Paul is talking about here, the hope of the Messiah. But Adam Clark says, no, it's, Paul was not talking about hope for the Messiah because Paul knew the Messiah had come and gone already. He had died on the cross and resurrected and gone to heaven. And so Paul would probably rather be focusing on common ground with the Jews because he and the Jews could both hope, could both hope now for the promise uh, that the promise of the kingdom will be established or the promise of the resurrection of the dead, they would still hold that promise, even though the Jews had kind of the wrong idea of the kingdom. But still, it, Paul would be speaking more in tune with what they were thinking. But the, if he's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, no, the Jews wouldn't agree with that. Well, I don't know if, if Clark's right about that. I, I, I think that, that it could be he's, talking, he's on trial because of the hope of the Messiah. Or it could be the resurrection of the dead, as NIV Study Bible and John Gill suggest, and Adam Clark actually affirms. Or it could be all three, for that matter, because after all, God's kingdom, option one, is established by the Messiah, option two, and in this kingdom is going to be a bunch of resurrected saints at the end, at the consummation of that kingdom. So anyway, Paul is talking about hope. We go to verse 7 in Acts 26. Well, let me back up. I'm mid-sentence here. Verse 6 says, And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Verse 7, The promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. And see, Paul is sounding pretty noble here. He's talking about hope. He's talking about something that people love to hear. And the Jews are trying to stomp that. 
squelch that hope. doesn't make them look good. Now notice Paul says the 12 tribes, even though the northern 10 tribes had been scattered and lost in 722 B.C. when Assyria attacked northern Israel, but all Jewish doctors spoke this way. They said the 12 tribes, that's just a sort of shorthand way of talking about Israel, even though now there's only two tribes left. Here's an example of how James did that, who was a very Jewish guy, the Lord's brother, probably, James, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So James calls, is referring to Israel, and of course he's talking about Christian Israel, now he's talking about the new Israel, but he, he, he says to the twelve tribes, when, of course, the 12 tribes don't exist at the time that James is writing, but it's just a shorthand way of saying Israel. Now, what is Paul saying here? He says, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope, and what he is implicitly pointing out to Herod Agrippa II, the real reason for his legal difficulties had nothing at all to do with sedition. It has to do with the hope, the promise of the fathers, the resurrection, the Messiah. These are religious things. Got nothing to do with civil commotion and turmoil and riot. We go to verse 8 next, 26. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, Paul had been speaking to Herod Agrippa II personally at this point, but now he says any of you, is you plural, now he switched his address to others who don't believe in the resurrection. Herod Agrippa II actually might have believed in the resurrection. He was probably a Sadducee, though he maybe didn't. Uh, the NIV Study Bible says that Herod Agrippa II aligned with the Sadducees because he appointed from the Sadducees the high priest, and so, therefore, he was likely going to reject the resurrection of Christ as well as the resurrection of the dead in general. So maybe Paul is poking at him, too, at a character grip of the second as well as everybody else in there. He says, what is such a big deal? How come this is so hard for you to believe in the resurrection of the dead? Now, the resurrection of the dead was considered incredible by all the heathen. For example, when Paul was speaking on Mars Hill in Athens in Acts chapter 17, Paul was laughed at by Stoics and Epicureans when Paul mentioned the resurrection of the dead. And of course, the Sadducees amongst the Jews, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought it was incredible. But Paul is saying, look, you are a Jew, Herod Agrippa II. You believe in the omnipotence of God. If God is omnipotent, why is it so hard for you to believe in the resurrection of the dead? If you could believe in the omnipotence of God, even if you're a Sadducee or inclined to believe like the Sadducees, why can't you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Now, there's a question about what resurrection of the dead he's talking about. Is he talking about the resurrection of Jesus, or is he talking about the resurrection of the dead in general? Now, personally, I have no problem. I have no trouble even picturing the resurrection of Jesus. To me, this is no, it's, I mean, it's a big deal, but I mean, it's not hard for my rationalist mind uh, to get its, uh, to get my head around it. I, I've got no problem with that. But the resurrection of all believers, of all people, not just believers, resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now, that's something that I have hard, a trouble getting my head around. But I do believe it because Jesus, who did rise again from the dead as the first fruits, he says it's going to happen. I believe him. Acts 26, 9 through 10. Paul continues talking to Herod Agrippa II. In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This is one more place in Acts 24. Paul says he persecuted the way into the death. And here in Acts 26, verse 10, he says, when the Christians were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now, 
That could mean he was on a particular trial. It could mean he was put, he was on some kind of commission that the Sanhedrin set up to investigate the Christians and to persecute them. Or it could mean he was actually in the Sanhedrin itself. But this does not prove that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Many people seem to suggest that he was, but there's no proof of that. Some people also point to Acts 22.20 20 and say this proves that the, Paul was on the Sanhedrin. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, Paul says, I was standing by and approving, and I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. Well, just because he guarded the clothes of those who killed him and approved of the murder of Stephen, that doesn't mean that Paul was necessarily a member of the Sanhedrin. He could have shown his approval by allowing the murderers to put the cloaks at their feet without being a member of the Sanhedrin. So, we don't know. Now, Paul is trying to identify with the, his opponents here. The Jews, he says, in fact, I myself suppose it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene, just like you guys are doing to me. I persecuted them. You're persecuting me. I understand where you're coming from, guys, but I don't believe that anymore. I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Paul not only mentions voting against the Christians to kill them, that's judicial murder, a very serious form of murder, but he also locked up many of the saints in prison. We go back to Acts 8.3 and read that. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. This is in Jerusalem. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So Paul had a very sordid past from a Christian point of view, and he's appealing to that past. He says, look, if I can be this nasty towards Christians and yet believe it now, there must be something in the Christian message to make it true, to make me, a big-shot Jew, preach the gospel now. And maybe you better look at the evidence. Verse 11, Acts 26. And all the synagogues often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. That's bla and all the synagogues, Paul, I, Paul, often tried to make them, the Christians, blaspheme by punishing them. And I'm, the NIV Study Bible says that what Paul would probably do, he would go to the Christian and say, you got two choices. One is you curse Jesus, or two, you say you still leave, live in Jesus, believe in Jesus, that's fine, but we're going to kill you. So you can be executed and affirm Jesus, or you can deny Jesus and curse him and die. And live, excuse me. That's your choice. Paul continues in verse 11. I even pursued them to foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. Now, there's one place that we know that Paul pursued Christians, and that was when he was on the road to Damascus to get them to, to catch Christians. But he got converted before he got there, so he never carried out his purpose. And so there's a question, did Paul just scare Christians, and they lit, went to different foreign cities, cities but Paul didn't actually chase them into the foreign cities? Did he pursue them in Jerusalem, scare them, and then they left town? Or did he actually leave Jerusalem and pursue them on and follow them into the foreign town? I don't know. doesn't really matter how he did it. The point is, is he did it. Threw them in prison, handed them over to be killed, and voted for them to be killed in judicial trials. This is all predicted by Jesus, Matthew 10:17, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. The reason they fl flog in the synagogues is because that's where the local Sanhedrins met, and they would flog people right there in the synagogue after they had the trial. So Paul is doing exactly what Jesus predict would be predicted would be done. He's persecuting Christians. Now, this seems to me to indicate that a lot of witnessing was done in synagogues, which excited opposition. It also shows to me that there was many early of the Jewish Christians, how many of them remained in the synagogues. The synagogues remained a focal point until the church branched out into Gentiledom, into the, into the realm of the Gentiles. Okay, so Paul has tried to make Herod Agrippa understand his background, how 
he hated Christians, and then he's going to talk about what made him love Christians and become a Christian in our next audio, starting with verse 12. I hope you listen to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.